So go to the desktop that has your browser window on it first. Yes. Okay, I'm there. And then do the four fingers up thing, fingers up. and then and then and then you'll see the browser's kind of in the foreground. Then you can just drag and drop it on one of the other desktops, and then you just drag it to the desktop oh, right. that has the video on. Dragging it. it to the desktop. Then I can drag the yeah. I can drag your video to that same desktop, right? Yeah. Apple's very drag and drop. Right. Okay. You're listening to Leader FM a weekly talk show for intelligent leaders and executive coaches reaching for the next level. Leader FM is hosted by executive coach, Dr. Scott Francis and marketing media man, Tony Creech. This episode of Leader FM is brought to you by Advanced Leadership Coaching and thecreechleague.com. This week on Leader FM, Scott and I follow up on authority as a model of knowing truth, and we take our first dive into the realm of expectations in leadership. Hello world, you're listening to episode number 001. Scott and I are here and excited to talk leadership, and we believe that you are ready for the next level. So good to chat with you, Scott. Tony. Thanks for joining me. How you doing? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. It's been a few weeks since we recorded our first episode. Yeah. And you're out there in sunny been... Vancouver, right? Aye. Aye. <laughs> the time of the year that Vancouver is sunny. Yeah. And how are things in the Saskatchewan? You know what? It's it's gotten really <laughs> nice here. Except a few days ago, I went fishing. The first day we were there, it was really cold. And I every time <laughs> I've been up fishing there... It's been beautiful. And so this is the first time I've been up there when it's been like ridiculously cold. It was like one degree above zero. <laughs> above freezing. That's, that's above freezing for American people. And uh, I took every single piece of clothing that I had in my suitcase and was wearing it. And I had to borrow a, another coat and a toque and mitts. And, and then we weren't catching anything. So it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. <laughs> okay, that's not true. We had a nice time. But... The first day was not so nice, but then it warmed up, and the last day we were there, it was beautiful, sitting on the, the lake. It's up in the Canadian Shield, so it's all just rocks and trees and lakes, and oh, nice. we, had, we had the dream shore lunch, you know? So that's like above Waska Sioux? Yeah. Is that where you went? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've been to Waska Sioux, but I haven't been north of that. Mm. I was going to say fishing at like Glass Mountain Lake, but you know, you're like, you're talking about real, going no, real to the real places. In a real lake, not a really long <laughs> pond. <laughs> the really long pond. Actually, I'm doing a fishing camp there. I'm speaking at it next week. You're speaking at a fishing speaking camp. Speaking at a fishing camp. We've never done a fishing camp before. That's so cool. Yeah. How about you? What's been going on in Vancouver? Just dancing. <laughs> <laughs> We do have some follow-up I want to okay. dive into. Yep. Every week we'll be doing follow-up on the past episodes, things we've heard from you listeners, your questions and the like. We got some feedback from a listener called Jeff. Jeff sent us some feedback on episode 001 where we talked about epistemology and the theory of knowing and leadership. We talk about positivist theories of knowing. We talk about constructivist. And we talk about authority. And authority is like the pre-enlightenment mode of kind of pre-critical getting truth from authoritative sources. I know I'm butchering it. I know if you're a philosopher right now. But Scott and I chatted about how you need to look at each of these ways of knowing truth as a lens and actually employ different lenses and different ways of getting to truth in different kinds of situations that arise as a leader. And I think Jeff feels like we shortchanged... <laughs> 
the authority model because we talk about being bilingual and being both constructivist and also learning to employ and see in a positivist kind of frame of mind when when it suits the situation. Jeff says, I would like to suggest that we should rather be trilingual. I would suggest there's still some collective historical authority in our democratic legal judicial systems that have arisen from a Judeo-Christian worldview in Western societies. I mean, and to that I would say, Jeff is totally right, authority is still around. Uh, authority hasn't completely gone. Yeah, that's an interesting, because uh, like you and I were just chatting about this uh, yesterday. I think we see a lot of that um, that authority type of epistemology come in when when you look at how people make decisions about um, whether they're going to immunize their children or not. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's based on someone's authority somewhere else as opposed to looking at the science behind it. Using our lenses, we can see when people are determining the truth because they're basing it on authority. Um, that is to say that they, they believe something is true because an authority figure to them has told them it's true. I mean, this could be a a website on organic food. It could be Dr. Oz claiming um, claiming something about some medical powder or some problem you might have taking on water. <laughs> uh, the point is, is that people believe it because of authority, and it's important as a leader for us to have that lens to look through, to, to ask ourselves, how are we attempting to arrive at truth in the situation? How are, how are, how are the people that are talking to me and uh, bringing up an issue looking for truth. It, it, it can be really messy, actually. Yeah. I'm sure I've had lots of awkward conversations with friends where we're disagreeing on authority. I think you're absolutely right that um, there, are, there is so much information that comes at us during the day. Yeah. If we're going to be uh, using a healthy, critical eye at every piece, it would take us forever to, to be able to really think through every bit of of data that comes our way. So when someone quotes something and says, you know, the sun is X amount of miles away from the earth, you know what? I'm just going to take their word for it. You know, Wikipedia, I'll take, I'll take the word for it. Yeah. Unless you're building some contraption, some space unit, there's not a lot of consequences for you having the wrong information in your head. (laughs) Now there would be consequences in other places though, like whether I should immunize my children or not. Oh yeah. Oh man. Indeed. So, obviously, folks at home, I hope you're hearing how important uh, that authoritative lens can really be in understanding how we go about truth. It's critical to leadership. Um, Thank you, Jeff, for sending that word in. As you can see, this really does make an impact. I know we're not being as exhaustive as we would in a course in this kind of talk show we're doing on leadership, so we can always go deeper. The well is there. I promise you, if you stick around, we'll circle back. And, and you know, as I've thought after receiving that feedback, um, I think it's naive for me and anyone to think that that we have thrown off that whole authority epistemology. I think it's alive and well in each one of us, regardless of how sophisticated we are in our, in our thought process, you know? So being aware of that, Mm. that it's always active. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what, you know what I'd be really curious to hear, uh, from, from our listeners is, uh, stories of when they've been stung by one of the epistemologies that we talked about, like from, cause I think you can get stung in all three. Mm -hmm. And if you want to respond to that, please go to leader.fm if you're not already there. 
and you'll see a contact form. Just fill that out and uh, let us know. Thank you. Um, I, I do want to move on to some personal feedback I had because I went to that LeaderCast conference. Oh, yeah. Do you go to conferences, I Scott? Go, you I got do, a lot of them? and I wanted to go to that one. I was down in, down uh, in Spokane for my grad, so I couldn't be there. It's <laughs> uh, too bad. It was it's actually good. really fun. Yeah. I love listening to leaders, and some of the talks aren't necessarily at an advanced leadership level. And, you know, you're dependent on that person's ability to explain their own leadership. And sometimes we can do things without knowing exactly why we're doing them so well. But I, I love any chance I get to listen to a leader. And this time, I purposely was listening for lenses, for the positivists, for oh, the yeah. constructivists, for authoritarian yeah. models in the way they spoke. And I did want to mention uh, Ed Catmull, who basically has run Pixar since before it was called Pixar. He ran the team at Lucasfilms. He's one of the inventors of computer animation. He's a big guy at Disney now. Um, one of the big people in Steve Jobs' life that helped him, that taught Steve a lot about managing and being a leader, that helped Steve make it the turnaround to Apple. Pat Catmull, he spoke in a very constructivist kind of way. Uh, and he, and w when Pixar makes a movie... They don't, it's not like one person has an image of exactly the pinpoint that they want it, exactly where they want to go with it, the exact way it's going to look and the exact way the characters are going to sound. And they force everybody like some great master to do those exact things. They head in a direction and he calls it the, the unmade future. Basically, instead of, instead of even knowing, he says, nobody at Pixar knows what a movie's going to be like until they're almost completely done with it. They go through major crazy changes because they're willing to they're willing to make a lot of bad mistakes before they get to the good one. And so the movie changes quite a bit and and the director is just somebody who's driving it in a direction and in that direction they make make all sorts of changes. They're not going to end up in any they, they think they're going one way and they and they think they're going to land in one specific outcome but then they end up in a completely different place, but the direction's the same and they're running in that direction. And in that they make it together. I, you know, I'm thinking about the idea of truth being constructed together and, mm -hmm. uh, and how for his creative work, it's really important to his success to be operating under the, that model. It's not, he did, that's not the only model he can use for everything in, in a company, but especially for getting creative, it's really important. And I think it, that kind of model becomes more important the more you have employees that reject a certain industrial model mm. of the boss says it, he's the boss, because they want to be included in the making of the company's future. Well, I think um, the more that, that our economy gets based around uh, a knowledge-based society, as opposed to mm -hmm. us building stuff, like, we're, we, we're not the ones on assembly lines anymore. It's machines that are doing that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and a, and a lot of the focus of of labor these days is in that creative realm, um, and and definitely the constructivist epistemology really fits that. And what you were describing there, uh, you know, about Pixar and their process, mm -hmm. it, yeah, it really makes sense there that they use a process that is more open ended because that that allows that creative. Uh, the unconscious part of the of the creative mind to sit and stew and think and come up with brilliant ideas, whereas you if you expect uh, a more rigid 
kind of approach to creativity, it, it doesn't work mm-hmm. as good, you know. Exactly. And, and knowing, knowing where to mitigate risk and what risks to take is super important. Not because I think a lot of people, they shy away from, they shy away from those things because of risk. Here's the thing though. There are, there are contexts where, um, it is, it is the wrong thing totally to bring in, uh, yeah. to be looking at something through an, uh, constructivist lens. Like for example, uh, I'm a volunteer firefighter. When we are responding to mm-hmm. a scene, yes, we have to bring our creative thought and, uh, you know, and, and to a degree, there is a construction of reality happening, but we don't have time for that kind of uh, dialogue at that point. Um, yeah. We need to be thinking creatively and, and designing our culture when we're practicing. But when it comes performance time, you need to just bring mm-hmm. it. And, and in those contexts, the uh, much more of the modernist, positivist way of of thinking comes into play when you roll up on a scene it's mm-hmm. all positive thinking positivist thinking mm-hmm. you know yeah. mm-hmm. and authoritarian control in terms of yes. okay you're going to go do this i'm going to do this yeah. this person's in charge has... they say this you do that exactly and it's totally appropriate and uh you, i mean you got to be able to flip that switch in your mind depending on on whether you're just practicing and working on things together or it, whether the tones go off and boom it's a real deal so you'll be in the same day coaching somebody, helping them <laughs> and being in that total, a, a total frame of mind. And then do you have like a beeper goes off is like 1991 or like a, or you <laughs> yeah. get a phone call and it's like, there's a yeah, fire a and then you have, you switch gears and someone's in charge and this is my role. And, it, and you dive in like that, just kind of like yeah. flip the switch and dive in. I love it. I love that. Cause, because <laughs> lots of times I'm, I'm such a constructivist kind of setting and I'm really helping someone to think mm-hmm. through the way that they're thinking about life. And then boom, the tones go off, you know, and I, uh, mm. uh, depending mm. if I can excuse myself, then all of a sudden, everything within my brain changes. And, uh, mm. and, and of course, you get a shot of adrenaline, which you need to calm down. But it is, it's really neat to be able to make that switch fast. Okay, I, I think we, we need to get going here. So uh, you, have a bit, you have a little bit of follow-up, Scott, yourself, I think. Oh, yeah, I had some follow-up. <laughs> so yeah. I got some feedback from my brother-in-law about the show. He, uh, he listened to it, and he, he corrected me. A quarter section of land is a half a mile by a half a mile. And I'd said a quarter mile by a quarter mile. So thanks, Kent. Uh, now I've set that straight. <laughs> oh, also, sure. I think your, bro- your brother mentioned, he, your brother said something about it sounding kind of like some of it sounded scripted. And I, yeah, he, and thought I it, hope- he thought it was scripted. <laughs> and this- it's not, the show isn't scripted, but thanks. <laughs> we want to make this a, a, a conversation on leadership uh, where we have topics but we we want the audience and the feedback to be a really important part and it's not just a teaching show i think there's sometimes there's more to learn in conversation than there is in a simple three point lesson uh and that's one of the reasons why we chose this model of the show are you ready for the topic let's go to the topic yeah <laughs> i wanted to chat with you about expectations this week I'm in a spot in my career, uh, busy doing consulting and lots of client work, but also interviewing at interesting places where I feel I can add value. And I'm thinking about expectations a lot. I mean, it's 
key for every project and client I encounter, of course. And really, it's an essential part of leadership. Scott, first thing I want to ask you is, when you talk and coach leaders through uh, stuff on expectations, what do you mean when you use the term? What's, 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 how do we define expectations for people? Mm. Yeah, good question. Like, I think that the term is one of those ones that, that we don't realize, but it's carrying multiple different meanings. And, uh, and if we're not mm. really clear on, on what, that, what specifically we mean, I think we can sometimes get ourselves, uh, we, we'll hem ourselves in or we'll, we'll almost be tyrants yeah. to ourselves. So I, like, I think like, the main one that people would use it for is uh, expectations are what you use to set your vision and your goal for the future. You know, mm. uh, we are expecting to see a 20% increase in sales by such and such. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, that's, that works great. But I think sometimes also we're using expectations to predict the future. Uh, you know, it sounds mm. the same well, how do you mean? as a vision or goal, but, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like the government right now is uh, currently expecting the price of oil to be up around $80 a barrel. That's oh, yeah. what they're saying they're expecting, right? But mm-hmm. now, now for, for uh, our American listeners, um, the Canadian government really relies heavily on oil revenue, uh, and some of our provinces do as well. And so, you know, it's one of these things we're all looking at in the region I am, when is oil going to rebound? Yes. And uh, it's this prediction of the future, but, but then there's other people under their breath that are saying, oh, I expect it's going to stay or down around you know, $55 a barrel for a few years. Mm. Um, and one thing we know about the predictions that we make of the future, we typically have a more bright view of the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, typically. And I think that sometimes that, that can sting us. Oh yeah. I mean, sometimes when, organizations plan they do their planning according to the expectations that they want rather than the expectations based on the past and what it looks like actually is going to happen right well i think like i've often been in strategic planning sessions where people are you know dreaming up everything we're going to accomplish this year and so often we we don't make space for getting blindsided by something or for a downturn you know, or for yeah. a drop in enrollment, you know, mm-hmm. something inexplicable. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, exactly. I think that some people might have seen like expectations in our title and thought, oh, this is, I mean, this is lame. Expectations are easy, but I really do mm-hmm. think it's a huge failure point uh, for a lot of leaders. I mean, it's critical for leadership and yet I see it more than almost anything else. Leaders failing in to one of the traps around expectations, not setting them, not recognizing them, uh, not doing that whole expectation process, both with strategic planning and with their direct reports consciously. How realistic your expectations are being tough on yourself and your strategic planning. Like when you, when you, when you're planning, I mean, that's the time this you're not, you're not giving some motivational speech. That's the time when your expectations need to be tuned to reality as closely as possible. You should, you should expect the downturn and, and, and do do everything you can to work against it. Scott, how do you help leaders who they want to be thinking positively about the future? They want to be thinking in terms of growth, uh, 
yet they're not being too hard on themselves. How do you help those kind of leaders grapple with the fact that they aren't, their positive thinking is actually working against them because they're not heading straight into reality and the real challenges that they're facing as an organization? There's a few things you can use. One is worst case scenario. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, this is one of those things that really helps within the fire department. Um, of course, we're mm. the fire department is all about scenarios, dealing with scenarios. <laughs> and and I notice that sometimes we make the mistake of, you know, when we're planning on how we're going to, you know, deal with, say, a car accident. If we're thinking mm-hmm. the car will be, if the car is like easily accessible, then we can use this tool and we can easily deal with the problem. But what we really need to be thinking mm-hmm. about is what if the car is like upside down, hanging from a tree, um, mm-hmm. on fire, uh, you know, with... Uh, with loads of stranded puppies all around underneath, you know, just make the most ridiculous <laughs> scenario, you know, with a, with a tanker car coming at us at thousand miles per hour. Anyways, the gist is, yeah. um, when you do worst case scenario planning, probably that scenario will never happen. But what it does do is it puts you in a place where you can think, um, you know, and, and, and come up with, with, responses that you would use for that scenario, which will quite often Mm -hmm. mirror a response you would do with another one. So a great scenario Mm. for you to use is to plan for a zombie apocalypse. Right? Mm. And by the way, the town that I live in, the the town that I live in, Regina, (laughs) is supposedly the the best place for a zombie apocalypse. Best place to be as a human. (laughs) Because it's just so far from... Everything. Well, I think part of it's because uh, it's just fields, flat fields all around, so you can see the zombies coming. But mm. where I'm getting at here is, do they have, you know, a, you do may, they have a bullet factory there? A bu- no, I don't. Well, you know what though? There's a a place that makes tank parts near where I live. Don't know if that would there help. You go. We could throw the tank parts at them. My point I'm, is, I'm this. seeing the pieces of a movie coming together. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> zombies talking <laughs> Regina. <laughs> the the point here is when you're doing scenario planning for worst case scenario, you are also, um, you are unconsciously planning for the, the moderate case scenario. Do you get what I'm saying there? Mm-hmm. Well, like, uh, like Giuliani, mayor of New York, mm-hmm. Rudy Giuliani, he, uh, he encounters a situation, the 9-11 attacks in the World Trade Center, and he, they don't have like a plan for that. But his team has made a bunch of other plans. And then he goes into the situation that they didn't necessarily plan for, but they use their worst-case planning for a bunch of other scenarios to come to play in that. And so they actually weave together five different plans that they have. Yeah. Because you don't know what's happening in your company. But just because you're preparing for a scenario that that exact scenario not happening is too many times I've heard people stop themselves from following through on, on completing plans that would keep them safe from certain kinds of problems. Mm. And because they, and, and, and they've stopped themselves because they're like, well, that's unlikely to happen when re- in reality that becomes a tool. It comes a tool when this, when this unexpected thing happens, we've actually, we already have a plan for this over here that we can take and use. If it's an evacuation something we'd have from, from a fire and we, we actually use the, the fire evacuation of the city to help move people out of the trade center. We use this, you know, we use this plan yeah. from this, from over here and we pull those together and they be those, those kind of 
worst case scenario plans become tools. Is that what you're saying for mid range yeah. stuff? That's that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. So it may not be zombies, but it may be, uh, I don't know, a heat wave, you know, and, uh, and we have to evacuate or, or move some people to a place because Canada, we don't deal with heat waves as much as you do in the States. And, you know, there may be some individuals mm. that are just not ready for it. So anyways, um, mm. you know, another place you can do this though, you can do some, uh, best case scenario planning, you know, like, like, like opportunity planning. So, you know, that classic conversation you have, what would you do if you won a million dollars? It's, that's one of those great questions that actually gets you thinking about what's important to you. Yep. Um, we, I use that, we use that a lot with charities because charities will always feel like they don't have any money. hmm. They haven't thought about the huge donation. And so when donors come and talk to you, they can tell at the level you're planning at, they can tell that you're not ready for them to drop a hundred million dollars on you they can they can see that you're not ready they can see the thinking isn't there but when you have a plan for what you would do for 10 million dollars 20 million dollars when you have that architecture in place in terms of your vision well that changes things that comes off in your marketing that comes off in how you in, in as a charity, as uh, how you gather funds, that kind of that level of thinking oozes out of you in all these subconscious ways, even if it feels like a futile exercise. Yeah, is, is that where you're going with that? Yeah, I, yeah. And best case planning. And well, the other thing is this: like, oftentimes um, you have opportunities come along, but you got to move on them quickly. Yeah. You know, and if you haven't been doing any kind of planning for that then you're going to be stuck. Somebody shows up, you know, there is a really nice grant available, but it's going to take us a week to get all the paperwork together for it. Um, mm-hmm. And we never even thought through this kind of thing. You know, two weeks goes by and the grant's gone and we, we missed the opportunity. You do board governance work, right? Yes, I do. Because yeah. that kind of preparation is crucial for boards because things come at an organization and then the board needs to be like, Oh, wait a minute. All right. What are we, what's our, what, what, how do we handle this kind of a thing? Mm-hmm. And if they haven't done the work, either receiving big things or dealing with big problems, they're generating it on the fly. Yeah. Yeah. Like the whole idea of a board. And if you're using a Carver model or whatever your model is for your board, like when authority is distributed in that kind of way, it, it becomes more important to do planning on purpose together. Right. Hmm. Yeah, if your if your situation is that whenever an opportunity comes along or you know a danger or something, you have to have a board meeting. You know what it's like to get everybody together for a for a quorumed board meeting. You know sometimes that opportunity or that that danger, the, the window is lost, the window of opportunity, and uh, you know, and, and in many cases, your director doesn't even try doesn't even attempt to deal with it because he knows there's, or she knows that there's no way we're going to be able to make this decision. I think the, the the expectation then would be that our director has the capacity and the authority to deal with these kind of opportunities and threats. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, anyways, because you've done that work together, you create that. Yeah. Now we're, now we're talking a lot about boards. Yeah, we are. We can we talk keep going down these about. rabbit trails. How are we going to talk about <laughs> expectations? No, it's good. No, it's good. I think I think it I think it helps. I don't know how many people I talk to and organizations that I'll work with that they'll say one of the things they're trying to do is become less reactive and more proactive. Hmm. And expectations is one of those ways. Learning how learning how to manage expectations and set them. 
Scott, I wanted to throw some ideas your way since you're the expert. Like expectations are important, uh, if if nothing else, for the people underneath you, because one of the, when people look at organizations, especially ones with low employee morale, one of the questions that people use, like Buckingham and Kaufman in their book, you know, what's the number one yeah. question is, do I know what is expected of me at work? Right. And that, right. the truth that I know so many managers that think that they've given clear expectations that haven't given clear expectations at all. Um, it's crazy. And the reason why is because they're not thinking through of what kind of expectations they're setting. Hmm. Cause you can set expectations that dip into the how this, like I'm going to tell you how to accomplish this. And, uh, you can, you can get into that, the, the thing where you are completely and utterly telling them how they get their work done and what they get done. In which case their failure is kind of on you. And you're not even giving them room to breathe. Thinking of how you can, people can set expectations in different ways, sometimes on the steps, sometimes just on the outcome. Uh, how do you take people through the choosing what kind of expectations to set? Or perhaps another way of framing it could be, if we're not in as much control as we think we're in, oh, how do we set expectations for it? Yeah. yeah, as leaders. Well, I think like a big part of it is is that the staff member knows what the deliverable is, what has to, what they've got to mm-hmm. have and when they've got to have it, who's going to do it, that that's really clear. And I think lots of times you leave meetings and that hasn't been set. Um, really, really sophisticated mm-hmm. groups, they've got templates. And as soon as they make any kind of decision, they immediately put a name and a date and a deliverable on that. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, there's ways you can come at this, and it depends on the context. It's one way is to say to an individual... Uh, you know, someone that you're delegating something to, I need you to deliver X number of widgets on Tuesday. You can do it any way you want. uh, As long as you don't spend more than this amount of money and spend this amount of time, keep within those boundaries, but Mm -hmm. you know, deliver. So then there's that, that expectation they know, but then I think there's another one. And this is for some of the contexts where safety is a key or where someone's life depends on it Mm. that's where every specific Mm -hmm. detail is mapped out um so that's like Mm -hmm. it like using a checklist um i i was just watching a group of uh helicopter pilots was doing a, uh, a rescue helicopter landing and i was sitting there as the the firefighter i'm supposed to hold these these um they're like lights that they can see to land with. And I'm sitting there waiting for them to take off and waiting and waiting and waiting. What are they doing? Well, I realized they're going through a 200-point checklist before they take off. <laughs> so my arms got very sore. But for goodness sake, they need to do that. These guys are professionals, but they yeah. do it every single time. And that's another way to manage expectations. It's on the other side of the spectrum, though. It's important to understand that there are like different there's different places where it's appropriate to to set certain kinds of expectations like check checklist manifesto that's a great book right yeah and it it talks about that that sense of there's things that you don't risk employees need to follow certain steps for the for certain parts of their roles because it's an issue of safety or accuracy um secondly you have the standards like there's um it might be an industry standard it might be just because of uh like it might be how long you charge certain batteries on an assembly line. So you have these different types of expectations you can set, but to, to, to push a little bit deeper, Scott, even when you have 
a bunch of steps laid out. And even when you have the deliverable, the date, the time, the cost, all given to somebody, things can go awry. I mean, I've handed that sheet to people uh, and, you know, they still feel like they don't understand what's expected of them. There's a lot of hidden expectations, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. Do you know one of one of the things that one of the things that really bugs me uh, in situations mm. I've been in is when I'm being held accountable for something that I didn't know I was going to be held accountable for. I showed up, I did what I thought was was asked for, but then they're upset because I didn't do this other thing that we'd never talked about. Mm-hmm. We'd never it wasn't clear. So that's like job descriptions are really valuable for that. And I think so often yeah. we as bosses will make the mistake of of having the job description and go through that and we say, okay, that's good, but this, there's something else about you that's really bugging me and this is what it is. And they didn't know that that was an issue and, um, you know, yeah. and, and we waited a year to tell them that. There, are you being measured? <laughs> yeah. Are you being measured by something that you know you're being measured by or is it this other person's values that is unspoken? Mm. Yeah, and it sounds simple, but everywhere I go, I... I hear people that say that they have no idea what's expected of them. Mm. And that is the leader's work done up front. And from underneath, that whole managing upside of it is just for you to say it's 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 you can't blame your boss. You have to negotiate success with your boss yourself. That's what you have to do. If it's you and a board, if it's you and C, you need to know that you're neg- yet you are negotiating your success and you're clear on what they want. And and there's a lot of big boy pants to get put on, <laughs> or maybe big girl pants. I don't want to be misogynistic, but and sometimes it's a lot of hard work, Scott. Because sometimes I don't want to lay out all my expectations for somebody. Well, up and front. oftentimes we don't even know. And sometimes I can convince myself. Sometimes I can convince myself it's a good leadership thing to do to just let them go after it, and then I'll form expectations yeah. of what I expect from them as we go yeah. along. And so, is it, for me, am I supposed to? Is it more important for me to? Do I put it on a calendar? Stop and think about this person's role and what you're expecting of them? Or like, how do I mitigate that? That's a good idea. Put it on a calendar. That there, There's some sort of regular process that you're doing that, that ensures that you're thinking that question through. Um, and then, mm. I mean, the, the reality is you should be, if you're, if you're you know, doing your job as a boss, you should be having regular mm-hmm. one-on-one meetings with your directs, right? Oh, Yeah. They're everything. They're a really important part of it. And and in that meeting, that's a classic moment for you to be thinking through, does this person know what I expect? Uh, and and mm. I think there's a, a problem when we think that laying out our expectations is somewhat tyrannical. You know, we, that we, mm. sh- we don't want to be the mean boss. And so we want to just be the kind of boss that's laissez-faire and says, you know, do whatever you want. Except, mm. I mean, and that's fine if that is true. But oftentimes mm-hmm. we're saying, do whatever you want. And then in the back of their mind, we're thinking, you better do it my way. You know? It's completely true that uh, we will one day, we feel like we want to be the kind of boss that does X. We do that. We're not, we're not being honest about ourselves. And more importantly, uh, sometimes we're not being honest about the position, like what you're saying, where it's actually, it's our responsibility to set expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how you said it, negotiate it. Yeah, I mean, that's why that was my nickname in high school, The Negotiator. (laughs) You know, there is so much that we could talk about with expectations, actually, even in just my little bit of, like, notes I wanted to write down before we talk. There's just so much more to talk about. And 
we're getting on in time and so we need to move on scott (laughs) darn it okay that's good darn it is a good feeling i'll get i'll get better at this (laughs) we will it's always we're 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 about improving and moving up up and on in the world and getting better. And, and that's the same of the show as anything else. But I, I do want to give you a chance to give everybody your resource for the week. I believe it oh, is yeah, yeah. your turn. It's my turn to give a resource. And so I wanted to give a tool that was really helpful for me for my dissertation writing. Mm. If you if you are having to, to sit down and do something that means focused work for a long period of time, like say it's two or three hours or more, like in the, a dissertation or writing a book or going mm-hmm. through your emails or something like that. Mm-hmm. Here's it's called the Pomodoro technique. Mm. Pomodoro, I believe, is means tomato. And uh, if you just check out the wiki, uh, the Wikipedia article on it, it'll give you all you need. But here's the gist of it: you basically you take a little uh, egg timer mm-hmm. uh, and you just set it for about 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, once that timer is going, you're on point. You're working. Yep. Just have that timer sitting beside you, and then, and then you know that you've got 25 minutes to just focus. Mm-hmm. If you get interrupted, like a phone call or something like that, or if it's uh, an email, you can always say, can I call you back when I'm done here? I've, I've got another 10 minutes left here, and can I call you back? Uh, it helps you stay focused on what you're doing. Uh, if you have to take the interruption... Then you squish that Pomodoro. You don't count it. Uh, and uh, at the end of, of your 25 minutes, you have a piece of paper there. You write down what you did. And then you take a three to five minute break. Then come back to it. And the gist is, uh, we kind of, it, it goes at, at the way that a human works. We're able to work in spurts like that. Yeah. It also, this is what I found for me with my dissertation, I would oftentimes get lost in it. And I'd think that I'd been working for 20 minutes and it was actually like two and a half hours. Yeah. You know, in a locked up kind of uh, stance at the computer. And then I'd, I'd stand up to, to go do something and realize how my body is now aching horribly because <laughs> I didn't get up and move around. Mm. So the Pomodoro also uh, is good for your health. Mm. So the gist is, again, you do 25 minutes or you could do 20 minutes, whatever works for you. Record what you did, take a three to five minute break, and then back at it. You do that four times and then you take a longer break. 15 minutes to, to half an hour. And what I would do often is I would step away from the computer and in that three to five minutes, I would think about, like meta-think, not about what I was exactly typing and working on, not that paragraph, but instead I'd think about what I was trying to accomplish the larger picture, you know, the 40,000 mm. foot level, and then dive back in again. So anyways, Pomodoro, check it out on Wikipedia and... Uh, It'll help you, particularly if you've got a task that is going to take you a while. Man, I, I think I might have been pronouncing that wrong my whole life. I've always called it Pomodoro, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know be. how to. I don't know Italian, so we need an Italian to tell us. I don't know how to do it. What's the the word for? You know, tomato? like the food. Why you know eat the food, Tony? <laughs> you make me cry. You know, like the food. Um, huh? you, you know, the funny thing is, is I use this Pomodoro technique. Uh, while teaching, mm. like, you know, teaching college classes and media or video or audio, whatever it is, I know that their little brains can't just soak up information for like an hour straight. Like our brains just kind of stop. They need a little, I need a little page break, so to speak. And so I just get everybody to stand up sometimes, stretch, run around the room. I'm trying to make everybody hold hands because that's exactly <laughs> what you want for college. 
but it's based around this whole idea of, you know, how our brains actually work and how therefore we need to take information or how we need to focus at work. We're getting to the end of our time here, so let me throw back at you what I'm hearing from you and you can help me understand. Sure. First, expectations uh, can be defined in different ways, like a vision, goal for the future. Um, Another way we can take it is a prediction of the future. Yeah. We also talked about expectations in terms of your direct reports and uh, how laying out sometimes how things are done or giving them the freedom to choose how it gets done and having expectations around the outcomes rather than the steps. But then also how even when they have steps or they have an outcome, how there can be hidden expectations beyond the paper. Right. And, I think the most important thing is that we are clear ourselves with our expectations and not not assuming that the other person knows what they are mm. or or thinking that by telling them our expectations that we're being tyrants. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That's helpful. Because yeah. so, I need to both really take the time to consciously know what I expect to get away from situations where we discover our expectations in the middle of a project and then we miss the real goals, the higher priority goals we really had that we didn't state overtly. And that holds back our execution in a big way. Again, stressing that it's the leader's job to set expectations. There's no points that should be given for people magically knowing your expectations. I know plenty of leaders who think they should be magic. Yep. Just, yeah, if you were a professional, you would know how to do this. Exactly. Uh, this is one of those leadership lies, one of the ways we tell ourselves they should just get it. Because every person is different, and you need to treat them and grow them and manage them in their own ways. Because, I mean, I... I'm crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. People say, people hire me because I'm so different than them, so they need to be real clear on what they want. No, I think we'll, in subsequent talks, we can certainly talk about some of the shadows yeah. of expectations, because there's certainly some some real doozers out there. Uh, when expectations can cause you to uh, to rebel, mm. you know, you see that with a lot of kids with their parents. Their parents have such high expectations and the kids just go the other way, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we talked about how expectations can be a little too Pollyanna-ish, how, we, yep. how they can be looking into the future and expecting to achieve goals simply because we set them. No, and, and so to, to be making room for insurances, to be uh, looking at worst case scenarios and planning from that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that, that gives you a bit more, I like to think of it as the cone of uncertainty. <laughs> you know, the, you see the, the, cone of silence, the hurricane. The co- yeah, the cone of uncertainty. The cone of uncertainty. You see those, those maps where the, you're, they're not quite sure where the hurricane is going to hit. Yeah. You know, to kind of think of the future that way, we expect it to hit, you know, between here and there. We expect our income to be between this and that, as opposed to having a one specific uh, expectation. Because what often happens is we we do not hit that expectation. And then we have negative feelings accordingly. And the strategic planner in me wants to just like go down the whole huh. strategic planning. Like That's another conversation. Anyway, what you're saying is... It can be a super valuable tool to work through the worst case scenario expectations. We can use some of that thinking 
in much milder stuff. Mm. And you're saying, and you said uh, that it's valuable for us to think through best case scenarios so that we're ready when opportunities come. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Very helpful. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us this week. You can find Scott at his website, advancedleadership.biz, or on Twitter, at leaderadvance. I'm at TheCreech on Twitter, and you can find me at thecreechleague.com. Please send in all your comments, questions, and stories to Leader FM. You'll see the contact form there. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes so we can share the love around, helping our show get more traction and ensuring more resources for you. Thank you, Dr. Scott, for joining me. It was a ball. <laughs> thanks, Tony. And thanks to our listeners. Think about this. How can you take what we've talked about today and leverage it to advance your leadership this week? Nice. So, there Scott, this is the after show we're in now. After show. Do you feel right. that? The show's over. We're still talking somehow. So now I can relax. Hey? And uh, a lot of podcasts do that, do the after show thing, but people don't understand that there's even a show after the music ends. Show after and the show. The, kind of the reason for this to exist is sometimes we might say things and go down personal rabbit trails that we need to really cut from the show. Uh, but we think some people, some of our listeners definitely kind of want to hear it, but we want to set it apart from our major content so that we don't waste anybody's time. Uh, gotcha. So are you saying that this after show is a waste of time? In a way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, sometimes you we'll still just... got another five minutes before you get to your destination so you can keep listening. <laughs> yeah. The listeners that listen get a treat. It's Think of it as a treat, not a waste. Um, I know I was, <laughs> I was listening to some podcasters that had found out that people thought that there was something wrong with their app because they would the music would end and then they would hear talking again. And they thought, it was, I thought it was the end of the show. Something's wrong with my app. It's not going to the end of the show properly. When really it was just the after show because they didn't know it existed. <laughs> um, so, hey, while we were recording, I got a, a call, mm-hmm. a fire call. But it's for, I, I work in two different places, uh, I volunteer, and uh, this is the one that I'm not in, so I don't, I missed out. <laughs> Fire alarms ringing at, I can't say where, but, so they're having fun and I'm missing out. <laughs> we could have had uh, you leave in the middle of the show. On a show, we talked about you getting called away to a fire. That could have happened. We're so close. That could have happened. It was yeah. the wrong area. <laughs> That's fine. So it, it's really nice out here. I'm coming back next week. Saskatchewan. Oh, good. Been out here for good. so long. Yeah, you're gonna like have a tan and stuff, aren't you? It's fun. You think I would if if I wasn't busy working. My wife, uh, she has a tan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, web with the web, you can work from a distance. I'm sure you do that with some of your clients. Oh yeah, yeah. This, yeah I can do uh, some of my clients just ex- exclusively on the telephone. Never actually met them. Huh? T- telecoaching. <laughs> I used to think that was a good that was a good prefix for stuff telehealth telecoaching <laughs> and actually it just makes it sound old even though even though it's, we still use it does telephones. doesn't it yeah yeah <laughs> call it e-coaching and it's like then you're like in, into the 2000s version of what the internet we need to put e so in what front do you of call everything. it what do you what do you, what do you put an i i coaching yeah i coaching it probably i'm sure somebody has a trademark for that out there sadly probably. they're using it probably. sadly but Sorry if that's you. <laughs> that's my brand. Right in if it is. I'm, I'm not meaning to talk about it. Actually, if you are currently coached by somebody at, called iCoaching, you know, I'm sorry. I apologize. Apologies for their coaching or apologies we just use their brand? 
Yeah, I don't know. Either one. Fill in the blank. Sorry. Hi, coach. <laughs> Whoever you are out there, call us. Yeah, call us. Actually, call us. We'll, we'll give people your, your address on the show and That's make right. it up to you next after show. We'll give you a discount on sponsorship. 